live out those words of prayer for our friends to follow. Amen. Awesome. You guys can be seated. Good morning, Peninsula Grace family. Uh, it is, it's, uh, it's good to be here with you this morning to sing the truth of God's Word, but then now as we transition, we're going to, to look deeply at, at that same Word and that same truth. Uh, if I have not met you yet, my name is Ross Schold. I get to serve here as family pastor, and, and I'm excited to, to be in God's Word with you as a family of believers. Uh, so if you have a copy of Scripture, uh, would you turn to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 12 through 17. If you don't have a copy, uh, it's okay. It'll, it will be on the screen for a time, but just to, um, so we can follow through uh, the, the passage, uh, it would be great if you have it either on your phone or in hard copy. And this month is Missions Month at, at Peninsula Grace, and we are considering uh, over the course of kind of a four-week sermon series uh, what our mission is as a church family. And we're asking the question, what is God's heart for our body? Last week, we kind of took a pre- brief detour um, from our series. We heard three amazing stories of gospel transformation in the lives of three uh, ACC students. And this week, we're going to be returning to the second part of our four-week mission, uh, mission of the church uh, series. And we're considering what it means to be a community, right? We're unpacking our, our, our vision state, uh, statement, what it means to be a, a gospel-centered community reproducing disciples of Jesus. So we're looking at what does it mean for us to be a community specifically. And the, and the invitation for us this morning, for each one of us, is to get in, to take a step deeper into the life of the body here. Next week, Justin's going to be back. We're going to be talking about what it means to go out as a body, and then, then we'll look at what it means to grow up. Uh, so let me read our text for this morning as we consider uh, uh, ways and what it looks like for us to, to get in. And then I'm going to pray, and then, uh, and then we'll jump in. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And on top of all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let me pray for our time this morning. Father, it is only by Your free grace that we enjoy peace with You and peace with others. So as we consider that grace this morning, would you change us? 
Would you make us more like your son as individuals? Would you make us more like your son collectively as a church family? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Cool. All right, so as we jump in, let's get a frame of reference for the passage, for the paragraph that we're going to be dealing with this morning. Firstly, this is a letter uh, by Paul written to the church at Colossae, and in it he's writing to address a specific problem. These brothers and sisters in this church were being tempted to buy into a distorted version of the gospel, which in so many ways was contrary to what they had first received. Now, we don't exactly know what this false teaching was, but we do know that it denied the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ in His work when He died, rose again, and then ascended to the Father on His people's behalf. And instead of that, it exalted things like the worship of angels, and it exalted kind of weird cultic rituals and, and asceticism, things like self-harm uh, and stuff. But as bad as that was, it did not end there. Uh, for the, the, the pol- this polluted version of the gospel also led, and this is true of all teachings, all heresies, it also led to a pollution, a poisoning of the church, the local church, the people of God. Behind me is an image of, of hundreds of thousands of pounds of fish uh, that were killed by an unknown source of water pollution. Now, this happened to be in, chi- in China. Uh, it's the best kind of image I could find of, of a bunch of fish dead. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, and we, but we all know like, this, this is something we, we, we value, we care about, you know, the, the protection of our water sources here, our sources of water here in, in, in Alaska as well. And that's because water pollution is devastating. Right? When something deadly gets into an environment's water source, whether it be industrial runoff or chemical or just a kind of a byproduct of a naturally occurring ecological event, entire populations can be decimated. And this is true not only of fish, but also of other wildlife and even humans. Right? Just think of kind of the, the Flint, Michigan water scandal. Poisoned water always poisons its environment. And Paul knew this to be true as well. He knew that if the gospel was allowed to be poisoned and polluted, then the local church in Colossae would eventually be poisoned as well. So what do I mean by that? Well, by by elevating uh, these practices, these rituals, this this uh, asceticism and the worship of angels, what some, the, what some Christians, so-called Christians in this church were doing were claiming to connect with God in a more meaningful, deeper, and truer way than other lesser, simple-minded Christians who just trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Right? So a hierarchy began to develop within the church in which superior Christians would disqualify lesser Christians. That's what we see in chapter 2, verse 16. And Paul wrote to combat this skewed and distorted, polluted version of the gospel. And he does so by lifting up the preeminence of Christ, uh, who has transferred his people out of a domain of darkness and into uh, and placed them firmly within his kingdom, his new community, the people that he is recreating. And they are qualified for this status within the people of God. They belong to this church family only because they have been united to him through faith in his work. 
and no other work of their own. This is a gospel of free and unmerited grace. And so this is what, chap- what Paul covers in chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians. Now, you might be thinking, okay, this is very nice information to know, but what, I, I thought this sermon was on getting into community here at Peninsula Grace. What does the Colossian heresy have to do with any of that? Well, here's kind of my, the principle that I draw from the book of Colossians, my hypothesis for this, for this morning. A graceless gospel will produce graceless relationships. That's our first point that we're considering this morning. Your and my functional gospel, the, the water that we're drinking, is the most significant factor determining the health of this local church family. What we believe about the gospel will drastically, more than any other factor, significantly determine and either hinder or prosper our relationships with others, and especially those within the church. Now, in some ways, that's kind of a big statement, or sweeping statement at least, so let me kind of explain myself. There were those in Colossae who denied the sufficiency of the gospel, and they instead relied on outward works. Now, as soon as they did that, and as soon as we uh, uh, unconscious, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes uh, uh, overtly, as soon as we do that, as soon as we begin basing our standard before God on our own merit or achievement, then we're able to create a tiered system within the church which allows us to look down our noses at or maybe just distance ourselves from or in some ways disqualify others brush them aside, who just aren't quite as either mature as us or just don't quite fit the, the stereotype of, 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 of what we feel like a good Christian here should be, right? So we look down our noses and, and kind of puffed up arrogance. That's one side. But on the other, other hand, there were those in, in Colossae, and those are, I, I think there are those of us, who, and myself included, or, who are tempted to buy into a gospel of self-sufficiency, and that leads us not to puffed-up arrogance, uh, but to despair and insecurity, because we realize that we could never measure up to a gospel of works. There's no way we could meet its demands. In the same way, when we operate out of our insecurities and believe that we could, be nev- we could never be good enough to scratch our way into the in crowd, then all our relationships are affected. They are tainted and polluted. If the gospel is you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and earn God's favor and a place within his, with, among the elite people of God, then there's no way that I'm going to ever walk in the kind of Colossians 3 type of biblical community that we see in our passage. There's no way I'm ever going to walk in real vulnerability. There's no way I'm ever going to really invite accountability into my life because I'm too consumed, too worried about how I'm comparing and measuring up to others. I won't be able to fully forgive because I'm too busy holding on to someone else's failures so I can puff myself up. And I won't be able to selflessly speak words of encouragement or any true sense of the word selflessly serve others because I'm too concerned with looking out for my own needs or my own interests. Right? If the gospel of self-sufficiency, if the gospel of works is our functional gospel, if that's what dwells in our hearts, if that's the Kool-Aid that we're drinking, then regardless of what, we're, uh, what we may articulate or mentally affirm, 
then our relationships and our experience of the body of Christ will be morbidly distorted as well. A graceless gospel will produce graceless relationships and a graceless community. And we see this all the time in churches today. All right. Arrogance and insecurity lead to abuse where there ought to be gentleness. It leads to cliquishness where there ought to be harmony. It leads to consumeristic passivity where there ought to be egoless service. So let's ask ourselves, where do we see a graceless, uh, where do we see this gracelessness, whether it manifests itself in arrogance or harshness or, or, uh, or insecurity, kind of false pride and passivity in our relationships? And what do these behaviors tell us about the gospel that we're believing? Fortunately, we have not been left to our own devices and we have not been abandoned to a gospel of self sufficiency. So let's look back on our passage this morning. And in it, I think we'll see, as best I'm able to tell, that grace-shaped relationships flow from a grace-shaped gospel. And that's our second point for this morning. From the very beginning of the paragraph, Paul is weaving a thread. He's tying, he's making connections between the way we are called to live as a church family and what has been done for us as a family, by Christ. These are kind of, he, throughout the passage, we'll see, he's, he's just digging post holes, and they're very close together as he constructs this fence, right? And we see the first of these gospel threads in verse 12. He says, You are chosen, holy, and loved. He has chosen us based on nothing good in us, but only because of his good. Pleasure. He has called you holy, though you are a sinner. He loves us, giving His own Son to make us His. Now can you imagine how resting in, how, how feasting on, and how digesting this free grace might radically change your relationships? Paul says here it will produce two things in our passage. Firstly, in verses 12-15, through 15, we'll see that it produces grace in action. And then secondly, in verse 16, we see that it produces grace in word. So let's take 12 through 15 first. Here's how I would sum up these three verses. The gospel of grace ought to lead to a grace-formed peace within a local church. The gospel of grace ought to lead to a grace-formed peace within a local church. Considering what you have received in the gospel, Paul tells us to put on compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now these all speak of behavior in the midst of relational conflict. How how we respond when sinned against. And then he unpacks what patience looks like in the next verse. A, A patient person bears with others who are a burden. A patient person, even when he or she has the right to complain, instead chooses to forgive. And then here we see a second postal, second gospel thread between our shared life together and the gospel of grace. Notice the rationale here to forgive is not forgive so that the Lord may forgive you. It is so forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. See, the gospel motivates us from our acceptance, from our forgiveness. It does not motivate us 
toward acceptance as though we could earn it. All right, if you know the, the, the sinfulness and failings of your own life, if you know that they have been completely wiped away by the blood of Christ, how can you help but cover the sins of others? And then Paul moves to the capstone, uh, which must sum up all of a church's life together. He says, on top of these, we are to put on love. We are to put on the attribute uh, that, that, the, that John in his letters, he uses to sum up the entire character of God himself. We are to put on love. And then in verse 15, uh, 15 he kinda, we reach the culmination of these verses. We are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. That is, the peace, the peace of Christ here is referring to the peace secured by and produced by Christ in His death and resurrection on our behalf. Now, it's easy for us to kind of think of the peace of Christ as some kind of vague or internal, warm, fuzzy feeling that we get uh, because God is always with us. And He is, and that should bring us a sense of assurance. But that's not exactly the, the peace of Christ that's being described here. right? This is not internal or subjective. This is external, tangible, and relational Peace. This is the peace that Christ has won for us with respect to those brothers and sisters within this room. And this peace is to rule. Right? The image here is the image of, a, of an umpire or a referee. Right? Just like an umpire's word is the final say in any dispute in a baseball game, so the peace of Christ must influence and dominate our decision making. It's to rule in our hearts, our innermost thought life, whenever there is conflict or dispute in a, local, in a church family. But then notice verse, in verse 16 that Paul transitions. He moves from discussing grace in action, now begins to describe grace in word. The gospel of free grace in Christ is meant to control not only what we do as Christians, it's meant to control even every word that we say. The word of Christ, or the message about Christ, is to dwell in us richly. And here's a fourth gospel thread in just as many verses. We are to steep ourselves in Scripture. To bathe ourselves in the water of the Gospel. Asking God through His Spirit to read the truth of the Gospel of free grace over our hearts and our minds in deeper in deeper ways. This is, this is not merely just hearing or, or doing what the Word says, although we are to do both of those things. This is actually participation with the Word of Christ. And then flowing out of that, we are to teach and admonish one another. This practice extends far beyond just what we're doing right now in 30, 35 minutes on a Sunday morning, right? We're called instead to explain Scripture, to remind others of the truth of the Gospel, to encourage and challenge one another with truth. We're supposed to say, you know what, this is what God has been teaching me lately as I've, as I've been spending time just marinating in and, and meditating upon His Word. This is what's come out of that. And, this is, and I hope this can be an encouragement to you. right? And it's a mutual process, both giving and receiving. And we live this out throughout the week in one-on-one -on -one conversations in community groups, or in discipling relationships. Right, if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian, you're called to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And then secondly, the Word of Christ which dwells within us is to overflow in song. 
The songs that we sing, have you thought about this? The songs that we sing on a Sunday morning, the songs that we sing around the dinner table as a family, the songs that we sing in a living room and in a community group, those songs, with those songs, we are instructing one another. We are reminding each other of our desperate need for grace and the abundant presence of grace found in the cross of Christ. Right? This is the beauty of a gospel-shaped and gospel-formed family of believers. That's what we see in verses 12-17. through 17. Everything that is done in word or in action, that's verse 17, is done in the name of Christ and flows from the Word of Christ, the message of His free grace. This is God's beautiful design, His heart and intention for the church. Right? Not poisonous pollution, but life-giving free grace. It's, it's the difference between rotting carcasses of hundreds of thousands of fish and the pristine waters of a healthy ocean. Now, we have, my family has been so blessed and encouraged because this is in, in so many ways what we have experienced over the last three months or so since, since being in part of the Peninsula Grace family. So, in one sense, I this should just be encouragement. Keep, keep on going. Keep on going. Uh, but this passage calls each one of us to keep pressing on. To keep taking steps forward. Right? This is what will make, a, if, if we want to be a gospel-centered community reproducing disciples of Jesus, this is, what, this is the kind of community that's going to make that beautiful. Right? It's not going to be a program we offer or a performance or a production on stage. It will be grace-shaped relationships that have been molded and formed into the pattern of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place as ruined sinners. If this isn't what we're aiming at, both as, individual, as individuals and as a body, if that's not what we're aiming at, then what are we all doing here? So, where do we go from here? What does this text mean specifically and practically as we consider God's heart for this body. Well, there are two observations based on this text that, text that I want us to reflect on this morning. And from these observations, I think we'll have some steps forward. So our third point is just grace-shaped life together here at Peninsula Grace. What does this look like? The first observation uh, I want to point out is that the kind of church culture that Paul describes in Colossians 3 assumes that a local church has a shared life together. Paul does not assume that these three things can all happen in a 75-minute service or even in an hour-long Bible study. Right? So living a Colossians 3 kind of life will demand, firstly, your time. It will demand uh, you rearranging your calendar and sacrificing your schedule. But we see this kind of community display not only here in Colossians, but also in the early church of, of Acts. Right? Consider this paragraph from Acts chapter 2. Luke's, Luke here, he describes the earliest Christians in this way. He says, They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent, whether in the temple courts or 
from house to house breaking bread, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having good, the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then we actually see the same kind of common life shared time together in, uh, in each of the next two or three chapters of the book of Acts as well. Now, there are a number of ways that you and I could move forward into this kind of community modeled, modeled by the early church uh, and, uh, and commanded in our passage this morning. But one of the ways, one of the best ways to do this is something that we're already doing as a body, and it's through community groups. Right? It's really through community groups that we endeavor to live out the practical vision for the local church as described in the New Testament. And we do this by cultivating deeper relationships with God, with each other, and with our neighbors. So what is a community group? Well, a community group is a group of 10 to 15 believers who are seeking to grow as disciples of Jesus, and they're seeking to do so together. Typically, a community group is going to meet for an hour and a half or two hours on a weekday evening in a group member's home. Right? Many meetings consist of a shared meal, a Bible study, and prayer. But community groups are far more than just a weekly meeting. They are about pursuing Christ-likeness in everyday type settings together. This is everyday life with gospel intentionality. So here's how you take a step forward in this kind of community today. You may have noticed, as Bridget pointed out, your bulletins are a little bit bulkier than normal. Uh, and that's because inside there is a wonderfully designed uh, practical guide toward our vision as a local church. Uh, and there's a section on each area that we're going to be covering this, this, uh, this November series, one on getting in, uh, on growing, one on, on uh, knowing how to get connected to the church, and then one on, on going, sending, and, and serving. And in, in it, you'll also find a contact card. And so to find out more information about community groups and know what they are or how to get plugged in, uh, you simply fill out the card, check the appropriate box, and grow. Uh, and then in a few minutes when the offering baskets are passed around, you can just drop it in the offering basket. Or if you want a little bit more time, there, you, can, you can turn them in at the welcome table in the back. Right. Now, all that was under the first observation, that... Uh, uh, grace-shaped life together requires our time. The second observation is this. Not only does it take time, but it takes commitment to one another. Notice here, Paul here is addressing one specific uh, local expression of the body of Christ. And he calls them to love one another, the other members of that local expression of the body of Christ. And he calls them to forgive one another, to teach one another, to bear with one another. I think we can get tripped up here if we take this, these commands to mean more than what Paul intended. All right, you see, it's relatively easy for us to love the church universal in some vague or general sense, all right, the body of Christ universally, which is a good thing for us to do. We ought to love the church universal. But it's easy for us to love the church universally in some sense because it doesn't really require anything of us to say that we love the church universally, right? But what the Bible calls us to do is to love a church specifically 
and locally. And don't hear me, I'm not saying love an institution or a brand or a pastor or a group of elders. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, and, that, and that's not what we see in Colossians 3. It's called, it calls us to love a group of people locally and specifically. And loving a group of local specific people is a lot harder because it's a lot messier, right? It's easy to say, I love the idea of families. It's a lot harder to love your family, though, right? How else, though, are we ever going to respond to one another with gentleness in the face of sin? Right? If we're not committed to one another in a kind of covenant relationship, how are we going to bear with one another over and over and over again? Right? How are we going to forgive like Jesus if I'm not committed to you like Jesus is committed to you? Right? How, how could we effectively teach or admonish one another? If I'm not committed to you and you're not committed to me, then as soon as you challenge me with something I don't really want to hear, I can just kind of passively disengage from that relationship. I can slowly over time just kind of disconnect or maybe I'll just pack up my bags and go to another local expression of the body of Christ. And there are times to do that and there are other great local expressions of the body of Christ. But without com covenanting and committing to one another, we can't practically and tangibly over the long haul fulfill these kind of commands. Right? He was, Paul is imploring the Colossians to stick it out in the face of conflict. Uh, without this kind of formal commitment together, our life together lose its, loses its teeth. Right? And, and, and our love for the body of Christ universally only has weight behind it if we're loving the body of Christ locally with the people that we're rubbing shoulders with week in and week out. I, I, um, uh, there was, before Monica and I moved back up here, we, we, uh, we were, uh, there was a conflict that we were kind of tangentially uh, uh, involved with and between two, two individuals that are in our church, we were in a community group with them, we were members of the same local church and uh, and there was just kind of this ongoing kind of bitterness and strife and a lack of, lack of peace. There was, it was ugly. There was sin on both sides, as there almost always is. And it just kind of kept going and kept going, even though there was multiple attempts to repair the relationship and seek uh, reconciliation, multiple conversations. There was just miscommunications and misunderstandings. People were, t they were talking past each other and, as, you know, kind of messiness that we Maybe all have experienced that one point or another. But, but Monica and I were able to witness and, and enter into and be involved in the, the repair and the reconciliation of that relationship, though it had gone on for years and years and years. But here's the thing. That kind of re reconciliation, that kind of um, uh, conflict resolution only happens when people are committed to one another. It wouldn't have happened if, 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 one, party, if one party thinks that they can just kind of disengage or peace out, right? That's why marriage, right? When, when life falls apart and my sin is exposed, I need to know that my wife has my back, right? The same is true in, in friendships. The same is true in the church. And isn't this the kind of thing that you would want 
in your relationships from others, not in, a kind of, not in an insecure kind of way where we're constantly asking, do you love me, do you love me, do you like me, do you like me, but in a way that, uh, that affirms and flows over the peace that's already been won and handed to us by Christ. So grace-shaped life together not only takes time together, but it takes commitment to one another. And the way we seek to live this principle out as a church family is through the practice of meaningful membership. Now, you might be saying, okay, I have been tracking with you until now, but I do not see anything about membership in the book of Colossians. And you'd be right. You'd have to go to 1 Corinthians uh, to see uh, Paul lay out uh, a theology of membership. But even in there, what you see in the context is that membership in the body of Christ only has teeth when it's expressed Locally, when we're using our gifts and, 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 uh, and, and loving each other locally and specifically. Uh, but here's the thing. We're not in first century Colossae. We're not in first century Greece or Macedonia or Turkey. We are in 21st century America and Alaska. Right? There's a whole lot of confusion and resistance toward the idea of commitment. It's easy for us, I think, to, to think about membership within a local church like we think about membership in a local Costco, right? You pay your yearly dues, then you get certain benefits in return, right? That's not the, the New Testament model of membership. Biblical membership is a public declaration in which a person says, I'm in. I'm committed to following Jesus and to helping the people of this church follow Jesus better too. And then in return, the rest of the members of that body say, we are committed to helping you follow Jesus as well. So the membership process here at Peninsula Grace is meaningful. And, and the elders were, were continually thinking about how to, how to best reflect the biblical principles of Colossians 3 and Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 in our membership process. So here's the, um, the second homework assignment for us this morning. Uh, I can't remember, did I? I'm getting services mixed up. I don't think I gave a specific homework assignment for the last one, but, but the second, second, uh, second uh, homework assignment for us this morning. If you are not a member of a local body of believers, just ask yourself, why, why is that? Explore, take, spend time just exploring that within your, own, within your own heart and maybe in conversation with somebody today. And then spend time praying this week about taking a step toward meaningful membership in a local church, right? It may not be here at Peninsula Grace. I'd love it if it was, obviously, but, uh, but I think the biblical pattern for us is to be committed somewhere. If you are a member of Peninsula Grace, then your assignment is this. Spend time praying, asking God for one clear and tangible step that you could take toward more meaningful, toward deeper fellowship with this body. The grace that was poured out uh, in Jesus' death and resurrection is meant to so shape our life together as a body that every aspect of what we do, our calendars, our commitments, our actions, and our words are transformed by that same grace. And it's transformed for our joy that we might be able to partake and participate in the, the beauty of God's design and intent for His people, and for His glory. So would you pray with me now as we close?
Father, in Christ, your Son, you call us chosen, though we often reject you. You call us holy, though we are sinners. And you call us loved, though we often fail to love you. Your grace is free and unmerited. Yet we enjoy it because of the unfading and impeccable merit of Jesus who bore all our sins on the cross and then rose again to new life. And when He rose, we rose with Him. And now through this gospel of free grace, you are making a people of your own possession where you above all else will be worshipped. Would you form that people? Would you form that more truly and fully here at Peninsula Grace? Amen.